Thank you for joining us for our current sermon series at City Baptist Church. And this is Pastor Paul, and right now we're in a study of the life of one of the most well-known individuals in all of Scripture, King David from the book of 1 Samuel. As we study the highs and lows of his life, we'll see that in every circumstance, God is working for his glory and for our good. We are so thankful that you would choose to grow in your faith with us. And if there's anything we can do for you, we would love to hear from you through our website or social media accounts. We really do believe that God is changing lives through His Word, and so we are praying that you'd be encouraged and challenged by this week's message. So if you were in charge of picking the next prime minister or the next president of the United States, what kind of things would you be looking for? How would you go about finding the right kind of candidate? What kind of character traits would you be looking for? You know, what kind of appearance, what kind of uh, presence, what kind of uh, speaking ability would you look for? Now, leaving policy aside, what does the ideal political candidate look like to you? Now, I think for all of us, I think for all of us, if we were to articulate that position, let's just, uh, let, let's just remove any sort of uh, ideology out of the way. And if we were to ideally create or in our mind visualize the right kind of person, I think that a lot of us would land maybe around the same area, to be honest with you. I think everyone kind of has this idea of, of maybe what, a, what they should look like or some characteristics or uh, similar postures or abilities that we think should be included in our vision for uh, a prime minister of our country. Now, I want you to keep that in mind this morning. That's just a, a thought process for us today. Keep that in mind as we now go to our passage in 1 Samuel chapter 16. So keep it in mind as we return to our study, and I want to remind you about the current state of the nation that we are in. This is our third message in our study of the life of David, uh, going verse by verse through really the second half of the book of 1 Samuel. But if you remember back to the first two sermons that we had been in, uh, that we've been in so far, Israel, if you remember, had demanded of God and of the prophet Samuel, they said, we want a king, if you remember that. And they said, we want a king to reign over us up until this time. God had, of course, been the main leader of the country, and he had some prophets and some uh, high priests and some judges that had helped lead the way and be that physical uh, encourager there to the country. But now they said, listen, we want to have a king of our own. And what they did not say is they did not say, uh, we want a king that's going to represent God for us. They did not say, we want a king that's going to be, you know, have all the characteristics of an almighty, all holy God. Instead, what they said is this. They said, we want a king like the other nations. Do you remember that? We want a king just like the other nations around us. Now, the problem with that is that the nations all around them were pagans. Uh, They were not God-fearing, God-worshiping people. They were immoral. And honestly, they were intent on destroying, uh, they were intent on destroying uh, Israel. It'd be like for us today, you know, in your checklist of what you desire for a prime minister, that it's like, definitely, I want some of the Kim Jong-un, you know, uh, characteristics, right? I want some North Korea dictator kind of a feel, right? Okay, no, (laughs) right? That's what it's like, though. They're looking at these, these pagan nations that are trying to take them out, and they're like, we want a king just like these other nations. And to us, you say, well, maybe that seems harmless, but it definitely was not harmless. And so Samuel, uh, sent by God, came, and he was the prophet of God, of course, and he tried to reason with them. He, uh, 
Uh, He tried to uh, tell them that the challenges uh, that would come from having a king would be great, but instead they insisted, and so God allowed them to have a king just like the other nations. And sure enough, whenever you desire something that is outside the will of God for your life, it always comes with some difficulties, and it always comes with some trials. And so they found themselves very quickly, Israel, suffering at the hands of an increasingly wicked king. He did not care about the people. The only thing that uh, King Saul cared about was his own glory and not for the glory of God and for the good of the people. It was all about him. He was very, very self-centered. And so because of that, it was only a few years into his reign that God had to step in and uh, God made it very clear that the kingdom would no longer be his. And so Samuel the prophet uh, came to him after a, a moment of really poor decision and great wickedness. Samuel came to him and he told him that, listen, you are going to lose the kingdom. God is already, he said, has taken the kingdom from you, and Samuel in his 80s had to get involved in the whole situation. So as we come to chapter 16 now of 1 Samuel, we're still in that situation. Saul is still the king, and he will be for some years, but his days as the king are numbered, and he knows it. He knows that his days are numbered. And so it puts almost another level of intensity in his evil and the way that he approaches things. But he knows that his days are numbered. And while he is still the technical king, what we begin to see happen here as we transition in this passage is that God is still searching and knows, in fact, who the true king is going to be. A king who's going to reflect his heart, a king that will prepare the people for King Jesus, who's ultimately to come through his line. And so that's where we pick up the story this morning. And my first thought for us today is, first of all, a failed plan for a king. A failed plan for a king. As we come to verse number one, it says, And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thy horn with oil, and go, and I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons." So Samuel, we're reintroduced to him, and here we see him honestly in distress. The king that he had anointed, the one that had seemed so promising, was a failure. He was nothing like the king that Samuel had hoped for. He was nothing like the leader that Samuel's mother had even prophesied about in her prayer. He was nothing at all that uh, that God had laid out for, that, that God had wanted for the people. And so here we find him now in Gilgal, mourning for King Saul. Now you might be saying, why is he mourning for this guy? He's wicked, right? He's an evil king. Why is it that Samuel would be uh, mourning for him? Well, I, I believe the reason he was mourning is simply because he was living in the unrealized expectations of Saul. He was now depressed. He was discouraged. Uh, The word that we have here that he was mourning, that's the idea of he was grieving. He was sorrowing. It was something that he, he carried with him. And he was upset. He was discouraged because things did not work out the way that he thought they should. He was frustrated. Maybe he was frustrated with himself. I mean, he was the one who was supposed to lead the king, right? He was the prophet. Uh, He was the priest. He was the one who was supposed to lead the king in, in righteousness. And yet here we have this king that's just pursuing evil. And so he's discouraged and he's upset and it had broken him to the point where he is grieving. I think all of us struggle with this in some ways. I think we can connect to this. Because so often in life we struggle with discouragement, we struggle with grief, we struggle with mourning because of maybe the sins of our past. There's times in our life that we struggle with a betrayal or a disappointment of a friend or of a family member. And like Samuel, we find ourselves grieving and sorrowing because of somebody else's failure even in our lives. 
And this is what Samuel was dealing with here. He was grieving over Saul's failure, and God comes to him, and I want you to notice how God responds to him. He rebukes him is what he does. He asks him a question. If it were you and I today, we would go to Samuel, we say, hey, what's your problem? <laughs> what's your deal? But God comes to him and he says, why? And how long are you going to continue to mourn for Saul? God is saying to him, how long are you going to uh, suffer in this way? How long are you going to mourn over him? It's in the past. It's over. Listen, it's not your responsibility. He made those decisions and it's time to move forward. This is kind of a side thought to the message this morning, but maybe that's what some of you need to hear from God this morning. Maybe some of you need to hear from God today telling you, listen, it's time to stop living in your past failures. It's time to stop living uh, in the hurt of that person who did you wrong. Maybe it's time to stop living in the hurt of the expectations of that person who's not living up to those expectations that you have for them. And you're, you're burdened by it and you're grieving it and you're sorrowing in it. And maybe God is saying, hey, you know what? Maybe I have something better for you, but you need to move forward. See, Samuel is sitting there and he's grieving and he's sorrowing over the loss of Saul and everything that happens. And God comes to him and says, hey, I want you to get your stuff together. I want you to get your horn. I want you to fill it up with oil. To us, that sounds kind of weird, you know, uh, but there's a purpose with it. I want you to get that horn. I want you to fill it up with oil. Make sure you put the cap on so it doesn't spill out. And I've got something for you to go and do. The point that God is making is that while Saul is in reality the king, uh, God is saying to Samuel, I've got something better for this country and you're about to be a part of it. And I really do believe that in our own lives. Sometimes we need to look beyond our past and we need to look forward and realize that God has something better for us to be involved in. God has a purpose and a plan for you. And sometimes we just need to take that step forward by faith and keep moving forward and say, you know what? Yes, uh, they did me wrong. Yes, I've been through some difficulties. Yes, I sinned in my past, but I'm not gonna let that hold me back and just lock me in place. Samuel was stuck in Gilgal. He was, he was held up because he was mourning and grieving. And God says, I want you to move forward because I have something for you. Look at verse two. And Samuel said, how, how can I go? He says, how can I leave? If Saul hear, hears, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with thee and say, I am come to sacrifice to the Lord and call Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show thee what thou shalt do. And thou shalt anoint unto me him whom I name unto thee. I don't think we fully understand the tension in Samuel's life. I mean, think about it. He had just told a angry unstable, uh, manic, depressive, crazy person that he's no longer going to be the king. <laughs> Who was the king when he said it to him? Okay. So you can imagine the little bit of tension in his life. It's like if you go to your boss and you tell your boss, you know, uh, I have all these problems with you and they're still your boss, right? You, you walk with a little bit of trepidation for a while. And so he goes to, you know, he said to Saul, he said, these are all the problems. You're going to lose the kingdom. And he had just told him that. And now God says, I want you to get up. I want you to get a horn of oil. I want you to go. And I want you to anoint somebody else to be king. That's why he responded in the way that he responded. He's like, uh, uh, he's going to kill me. If, he, if I leave this place, Saul has his spies everywhere. They're watching me. If I leave, he is literally going to kill me. <laughs> Saul knew that Samuel was the only one who could anoint another king. Think, okay, just put yourself in the mind of Saul for a moment. Okay, this guy, this guy was losing it. We're going to see that as we study a little bit further. He was kind of losing his mind. He was, he was so uh, just, uh, he was so focused and, and so worried about everybody else. He was so worried about his own life and his own kingdom. And so when Samuel says to him, God's going to take it away from you, don't you think he was going to be watching Samuel? Because Samuel was going to be the one who's going to anoint the next king. So he's watching them. His spies are there. We know that uh, they had a pretty uh, integral, like the Mossad today, they had a pretty integral uh, spy network. 
And so Samuel is terrified. He says, if I go, God, then I'm going to be killed. But God is way ahead of things. And this is what I love about our God. He knows what's coming. He lays things out uh, for us. And so he tells him, I want you to take a cow with you, this heifer, and I want you to go and take it with you. And I want you to have a sacrifice in Bethlehem. In essence, God is giving him an alibi. Does that make sense? He's giving him an alibi. He says, the reason that you're going and you're going to this town is because you are going to sacrifice. Of course, we know there was something else that was going to happen as well. This traveling that Samuel would have gone on, it wouldn't have roused any suspicion at all. Uh, as the one who was still judging the land and uh, operating as a prophet, it was, it was normal for him to travel from place to place for the purpose of having sacrifices, of holding court, to uh, deal with disputes among different people. As well, one of the things that he would do is if there was a town that had an unsolved murder, someone had been murdered and there was an unsolved murder, he would go and he would perform a sacrifice uh, uh, in order to atone for the sins of that place. And of course, hopefully to bring to justice the one that had committed that. And so it was normal for him. And so he sits back and sort of works through his grief a little bit. God, I think, kind of shocked him a little bit and let's, let's get going again. And so he obeys and does what God tells him to do. Verse four, and Samuel did which the Lord spake and he came to Bethlehem and the elders of the town trembled at his coming. Notice that phrase there. The elders of the town were afraid of him. And they said, comest thou peaceably? Are you coming here peacefully? And he said, peaceably. I am come to sacrifice unto the Lord. Sanctify yourselves. That's a command. And come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and called them to the sacrifice. Now Samuel gets there and the people are afraid. They're trembling. Why are you here? You say, why would they be afraid of Samuel? Well, let's just think back for a moment to his uh, recent history. Uh, they had maybe heard what had happened to King Agag. <laughs> now, we didn't cover that a whole lot in our, in our study before, but because Saul did not kill the king as he had been told to, Samuel took it upon himself to kill that King Agag. And so he had exacted God's judgment upon that king. And so they might have been afraid. Uh, we heard what, you, you know, who are you coming for, <laughs> right? Who are you coming for here today? It could be that they knew that Samuel was at odds with the king. I think the word traveled pretty quickly. Did you hear what Samuel said to King Saul? He said, it's over, you know, like the dunk competition last night. It's over. Did anybody watch that? That was amazing. Anyway, you have to go back and watch it. Okay, watch the highlights. And uh, it was over. And, and, and so they knew that Saul would not have been happy about that because they all knew his personality. And so they might have been afraid. If you're here, Samuel, and Saul finds out that you're here, then Saul's going to send people to come and take care of us. It could be that they were afraid that there had been some crime, some sin in their town, and Samuel was there to deal with it. You know, everybody who was hiding something was scared when they saw him coming. You know, he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna know. He's going to know what I did. Regardless, they were worried, but Samuel assures them, hey, I'm here on a peaceful mission. And he says, I want you to prepare for the sacrifice. And so he tells them, the whole town, he says, I want you to sanctify yourself. Now, sanctification in order for a sacrifice was unique. It involved every single person in that town, first of all, taking a bath. That's a good thing, by the way. Uh, putting on a, a new pair of, uh, putting on clean clothes. They to, were to abstain from intimate relationships and they were to avoid contact with any dead bodies. Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they all talk about this specific sanctification. But more importantly than the outward cleansing rituals that were to take place, there was to be a time for them to seek the Lord for spiritual cleansing from within as well. All those outer symbols were symbols of what was to happen within. They were to be cleansed and, and they were to get things right. And it's a good thought to consider that before they came to the sacrifice, before they came to worship, get this, they were ready for worship. They were ready for worship. <coughs> Excuse me.
excuse me, I think that's a good thought for us today, don't you think? That before we come to worship, before we show up for a time that is set apart, that each of us individually should be sanctified as well. I think sometimes we, you know, it's like, oh, it's Sunday morning and we get to church, right? Okay, good. God, fix everything, <laughs> you know? Make everything right in my life. Uh, oh, God's going God's to work things out on Sunday, I know it, so I can live however on Friday, right? Because God's going to work it out on Sunday. No, the mentality here is that before the sacrifice, before the worship, there is a set-apart time, there's a moment that we get right, that we get sanctified, so that when we come, when we show up here on Sundays, our hearts are ready to go. You know what I mean? Now, that doesn't mean that you don't come to church sometimes sorrowing and you need encouragement and God gives that to you. But I would say this, for most of us, this is a great thought that when we come to worship on Sunday mornings or we come uh, to worship on a Wednesday night and learn the Bible together, that we come, our hearts already, all ready to go. Already, already, we're, we're right with God. We already desire to hear from him. We're ready. And you know what happens when, when we do that is that our mindset gets pointed upwards where it should be. And we get more out of the message. We minister better to one another. Uh, we're encouraged. So many things happen when we sanctify ourselves, set, our, set, our, set apart ourselves for the word of God. And so we see that here with the people of Israel. They were set apart. Now, what we don't know is how Jesse and his sons got there. We don't know the whole situation. We don't know if they got a special invitation to spend some time with Samuel. We know that the sacrifice would have been for the whole place. But somehow they get like VIP tickets, lanyards, I don't know, and they somehow get close enough to meet Samuel, and this is where we come to our second part. We see the failed plan for a king, and now we see Samuel's plan for a king. Samuel's plan for a king. We pick it up in verse number six. And it came to pass when they were come. So imagine this, sacrificial time, everybody's out there, they're all waiting on Samuel, and Jesse, who's been named by God specifically, and his sons now have this moment with Samuel. And I personally believe this was a, a private kind of a moment. Samuel would have been on guard about publicly anointing somebody as king in front of an entire town, don't you think? He would have been aware of that. He would have been cautious. He would have been wise, as scripture teaches. And so I believe this was a private moment. And I don't know how it all came to be. I don't know how he got him, uh, Jesse and his sons there. But notice what happens. It says, when he looked on Eliab. So Eliab was the oldest son of Jesse. So Samuel is there, and the sons come in, and Jesse is there, and Eliab the oldest walks in, and look what Samuel said. Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. <laughs> I don't know if he was an impatient guy. It seems like he was impatient. I'm going to get a drink of water. Is that okay? He seems like an impatient guy here. But what is amazing is that Samuel, for all of his warnings to King Saul to be patient and wait on the Lord, the first guy who walks in the door, who comes in the tent, he's like, surely that's the next king, <laughs> you know? He's the one. <laughs> I mean, immediately. He didn't even stop to think about it at all. And you say, why would Samuel say that? Why would Eliab walk in through the, the, the entrance there? Maybe, I believe they're probably in a, maybe a covered area set aside for the VIP. You know, Samuel was in there, and he walks in, why is it that he said immediately, I think that's the next king? Well, the answer is in verse number seven. But the Lord said unto Samuel, look not on his countenance, that's his appearance, or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, but, or for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. You know, the way that God responded tells us how Samuel was approaching this assignment. 
Samuel was approaching this assignment in the same way that they approached the uh, coronation of King Saul. He was looking at the outward. And so Eliab, as he came in that tent or in that covering, he probably had to duck, you know? He kind of stepped in and maybe had to turn sideways because his shoulders were so big, you know? And he walked in and, and, you know, you were just stunned by his good looks. And Samuel says, whoa, I mean, this guy, he carries himself with confidence. He's the oldest son. He's got the most life experience and he, he walks in here. Just like King Saul. Remember, King Saul was so handsome, and it it referenced so many times how handsome he was in Scripture, over and over and over again. I mean, it was stunning, right? (laughs) And so he sees this guy, and he's like, wow, this must be the next king, of course. But I, I hope you notice in the verse there, that's not who Jesus was looking for. That's not who God was looking for. God was looking for a king who would be a picture of the Messiah to come. And so he tells Samuel, I appreciate it, Samuel. I know what you're looking for, but he says, listen, I am not looking for the same things you are. Samuel is a great example of how often we approach life. We are so outwardly focused, aren't we? We are so concerned with how somebody looks, what their possession is, uh, their income. That's the things that we focus on. It's interesting, recent studies have shown that in less than three seconds of meeting a person, your brain has already formed a perception of them. You've already judged them in less than three seconds. So if it's your first time here today, I hope it went well. <laughs> you <know? laughs> but you know what I mean. You, you, you do that. As soon as you see them, you look at them, and, and you immediately throw judgment, or you immediately assume you know who they are, and your mind, it's part of the fight, flight, or freeze uh, aspect of our minds, where you're deciding, am I going to run from this person? <laughs> am I going to not know what to do, or am I going to uh, trust them? It's really a trust factor is what it comes down to. And so within just a few seconds, and interestingly enough, it's built largely on unconscious uh, uh, mindsets uh, that are made up by factors such as a person's body language, uh, their voice, their clothing, their appearance, even their social category that you can sort of pick up on right away. And while there's a lot of factors as to why we do that, and we live in a very outward-focused society, it's something we need to fight against, especially as Christians. We have got to fight against it because we do not know how or who God is going to use for his glory. And ironically, it is often the ones that you least expect. It's not the ones that fit the, the ideology or, or you know, what you think a leader should be. That's one of the reasons I asked you that question at the beginning, because we all have in our mind a, an idea of what it would look like. I want to share a picture with you, and I want you to cast some judgment. I don't normally ask you to do that, okay? But I want you to cast some judgment on this picture. You ready? <clears throat> Get ready to judge. <laughs> all right. I'm going to show you these two men. Now, one of the men in this photo, every single Sunday, preaches to almost 5,000 people. Every single Sunday. One of these men, through his ministry, has planted almost 1,000 churches. One, zero, zero, zero. 1,000 churches. Which one do you think it is? Now, you're already ahead of me. I know where you're going. You're like, we know it's the one who doesn't look. Okay, it's true. Brother Rick Martin on the right, he's been a missionary in the Philippines for, I believe, like almost 45 years. I've had an opportunity to meet him and hear him preach in person. I remember the first time that I heard him speak, uh, I, was in, I was in Bible college, and there's a crowd of, you know, seven or 800, and he, he just sort of walked out there, and uh, I mean, he is so skinny, you know, like, I was worried <laughs> when I saw him, like, he is so skinny, and he just walked up there, and I didn't know anything about him, and I'll tell you what, I, as a young, you know, 21-year-old college student, you know, I was like, who's this guy? 
And then as I began to learn about his story and learn what God had done in him, it just, it just blows everything away because he doesn't fit the mold of maybe who you and I would choose to go to a foreign field. And I don't know about the other guy on the left either. I don't even know who that is. Uh, just so you know, um, I just, you know, Google's great. Uh, but I do know Rick Martin and I know that he is somebody that God has used in, a, in an amazing way, an amazing way. And so the point being here is that Samuel was looking at the situation, how we often look at things. His idea of a king was going to be a big, strong, tall, you know, someone with a commanding presence, but God wasn't in it for that. And so that's where we come to our third thought this morning, which is God's plan for a king. God's plan for a king, as we look in verse eight through nine, then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither hath the Lord chosen this. Then Jesse uh, made Shammah to pass by. It's another son. And he said, neither hath the Lord chosen this. Again, Jesse made seven of his sons. He had seven sons uh, passed before Samuel. And Jesse, uh, Samuel said unto Jesse, the Lord had not chosen these. Now, we don't know the reasons why Eliab and Abinadab and Shammah and the rest are rejected. I think outwardly, they probably would have been qualified, certainly, but God was weighing their heart. Remember back to verse 7. God was weighing their heart and he found them lacking. And so one by one, Jesse sort of trots his sons out, you know, in sort of a weird uh, fashion show type, you know, all right, next, you know, come in, uh, nope, all right, next. And they come walking through and one by one, Samuel shoots them down. It's kind of like I heard one person describe it like an Old Testament version of Cinderella, you know, and uh, Samuel's got the glass slipper, you know, and one by one they walk in and it just doesn't fit, right? (laughs) They can't fit it in there and they're not going to fit into the shoe of Israel's kingship. And so all seven come, they all walk through and then everyone looks around awkwardly. Uh, Samuel... (laughs) Then ask the strange question, uh, hey, Jesse, is there any chance you have any more kids? <laughs> is there any chance at all that you might have forgot one, right? Now, I'm not going to ask how many of you parents have forgotten your children before in a public place like a mall or a grocery store or a restaurant or church. But sure enough, Jesse didn't bring one of his kids. We look at verse 11 and 12, and Samuel said unto Jesse, are here all thy children? And he said, well... There remaineth yet the youngest, youngest, uh, but behold, he, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he comes hither. That means till he comes right here. And he sent and he brought him. Now he was, notice the description, he was ruddy and with all of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. This is the one right here. This is he. I think the question caught Jesse off guard. He was like, yeah, I, I think, yeah, uh, yes, I do have one more son, you know? Uh, but he is the youngest, and he's watching our sheep. Now, this already begins to tell us something about who David was. What it tells us is that there are several factors just in these few verses that imply that David is not the sort of man that you and I would maybe necessarily pick to be a king. First of all, it's his position as a shepherd. I mean, being a shepherd was not a coveted position, uh, slaves and social rejects typically were the ones who were shepherds. You know, you ever go to like a really small town and you're like, man, nobody is friendly. It's because they live in that town for a purpose. They don't like people, right? They don't want to be around other people. And so often shepherds were that way. They didn't want to uh, have uh, friendships and be around a lot of people. So they lived out in the fields. It was a demanding job, but it really didn't require a lot of skill. Uh, the second aspect working against David is the way that his father describes him here. He calls him the youngest Now, the English translation of the Hebrew word katan, which means literally the youngest, yes, but it also means and carries the connotation of the tiniest or the smallest. 
He is the littlest guy. And then we see the physical description of David. It says that he was ruddy, which is not a term we typically use, of a fair complexion, uh, meaning he gets sunburned pretty easily. Okay, uh, He had a beautiful countenance and goodly to look upon. Now, as Western readers, we read that, we're like, wow, this kid was good looking. That's actually not what it means. These weren't compl- like complimentary uh, things. Yes, he was good to look upon, meaning he was, he was maybe good looking, I guess, but the idea that's given to us is that he was basically a cute little kid. That's what he was. He's like, aw, <laughs> you know, David, aw, look at him. He's all sunburned, you know, and <laughs> look at him. He's been out with the sheep. Oh, go take a bath, you cutie. You know, like that's what he's, he's just a little kid. He, he was a young, cute little kid. And here he comes waltzing in. They would have had to wait for him to take the the ceremonial bath and change and all of that. They would have had to wait for him to come. And here he comes and God says, that's the one. The one that the dad forgot about. (laughs) When the decree came and Samuel's here, he wants to see you and all all your sons. He didn't even consider bringing David. But yet here he is, the runt of the family. And he's standing now before Samuel, <clears throat> there was something about David that made him kingly material, something that you and I would not have picked up on or recognized. And I refer you back to verse seven. At the very end, he says, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This is what it all comes down to. David had a heart for God. David had a heart for God. When God looks at an individual, he is not impressed by your outward appearance. That does not even register with God as a relevant quality. God never looks down from heaven at us and say like, whoa, nice bod. (laughs) He doesn't. Sweet haircut, you know. Man, that's a great fit today. No, God does not say those kind of things. God's standards are different from ours. He is not impressed by our resume. He's impressed by our heart. And in one sense, for all of us, that is good news, of course. Because when we look at ourselves and we consider the effectiveness that we think we operate in and the effectiveness that we think we have, we base our value on the world's criteria. But God does not base our value on that at all. First of all, he bases our value on whose we are. And if you're a child of the king today, if you're saved, if you are God's, then you have all the value. In fact, all of his creation carries great value. And you and I have great value before God. But what we notice here is that we don't have to live in the stress of trying to be perfect because God is not concerned with the way we look and the way we present ourselves to our society. What concerns God is your heart. The Hebrew word that is translated for us, heart, is a word that means your inner person, your mind, your will, your soul, your understanding, who you are inside. You know who that is. I don't know who that is. I know who I am. You should know who you are, but it's the way that we operate from the inside, which of course we know that does affect the outside. And God knows your heart. He knows your true, uh, where your true loyalties lie. He knows your inner character. And that's why God just sort of disintegrates the idea of how we look at people, because what really matters to God is the heart. Jesus said it this way to a group of individuals who looked really good and dressed right and kept the law in Matthew 12. He said, oh, generation of vipers. (laughs) How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. God is not interested in how we look. He's interested in how we think. 
He's interested in how we feel. He's interested in what we worship. See, if there's ever a hope in you to be, and I hope that you have this desire to be a leader, to be someone whose life can be useful for the Lord Jesus Christ, then you must pay attention to your heart because it reveals who you truly are. And your life will be a reflection of what your values are. All of us have been exposed to moments of our life where the real you was exposed and the outside facade was disintegrated. All of us have been around people, people that we maybe trusted or people that we uh, are in our family or people that we were close to. And then in a moment of crisis or of stress or of difficulty, the true person came out and we were shocked, right? I can't believe it. But if we're to be honest, we're all that way. We're all that way. And God knows, God knows the true you. And so that's why in a seemingly endless supply of individuals to choose from for the next king, God said, this little cute boy out in the field, he's the one because his heart is right. His heart. We know, of course, David was described later on as a, as a king after God's own heart. He, he, he wanted his heart to align with God's heart. And that's really the lesson for us today. And we must work hard and be diligent to keep our hearts and protect it. King Solomon said, keep your heart with all diligence because out of it are the issues of life. So much flows from our heart. So much flows from there. And so David, though small in appearance, humble in occupation, was a young man with a heart towards God. And so Samuel took that horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren, just in the middle of his brothers. I wonder what his brother's response was, right? <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, Eliab, have you seen his biceps? You know, like this. He's just a little boy. But yet God was making a point there. And the point was this, I care about the heart. And notice what happens. When he was anointed in that moment, the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And we're gonna see that played out in his life over and over and over again the spirit of God at work, the spirit of God that was placed upon him for a specific purpose. And so Samuel rose up and he went to Ramah. It's an amazing thing here that David is being anointed, surrounded by his family and the spirit of God comes upon him. And there he received the greatest gift in all of the world that you could have in this life and that is the Holy Spirit of God. And God would lead, David would lead his people in the spirit and power and the power of the spirit. One thought I want us to take away this morning is this. You know, it's better to be anointed by God than to be appointed by a man. It's better to be anointed by God than to be appointed by a man. It is better to have the Spirit of God leading you than it is to be recognized by, by this world, than to be recognized by other individuals. It is far better to have God's Spirit because then you're at a place where you're moldable and usable and able to make a difference for the Lord in this life, which we've been called to. We've been called to make a difference. And so I want to encourage you this morning with this thought. God doesn't look at things the same way we do. Praise the Lord. So for some of you that are maybe struggling right now, and you're struggling with who God created you to be, you're struggling with how things are working out in your life. I want to tell you that, listen, the way things go in this life really doesn't matter. But does God have your heart is the question. Have you turned to him in faith and accepted him as your Lord and Savior. That's the first and most important thing. Second of all, if you have, if you are a believer, how are you doing at cultivating a heart for God? 
How are you doing at pointing your life and your emotions and your will, right? All these things that make up the heart. How are you at pointing those towards God? I think the big, the big thought for us this morning is very simply that. How is your heart? How's your heart? Maybe it's time for us to do a little bit of a heart check this morning. Maybe you're living as if what everybody else thinks does matter. Maybe you are living your life in that way and you're, so intru- you're trying so hard and it's, it's so laborious <laughs> to try to please everyone else. And you're living in this facade, but your heart is just in turmoil and struggle and you're, you're stressed and you, you don't know what's going on. Maybe your heart needs to get back in line with, with the Lord. Maybe you've been away from him for a while. And so this morning, I want to encourage you to get back to that position. Get back to that position of having a heart for God so that God would be like, hey, I need, I need somebody to make a difference for me in Vancouver. Who's Who's ready? <laughs> Who's ready? It is possible, we know, to quench the Spirit of God, to keep the Spirit from being active and working in our life. And we don't want to be those kind of people. We want to be the ones that God uses. And so we learned today from David that it doesn't look like we think it's going to look, but God can do great things with anyone that he chooses, that he uses in that way. We hope that you were encouraged by the message today, and we would love to hear how God has worked in your life. If you'd like to take the time to visit our website and send us a message through the contact page, we would really have a blessed day.